Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in sections 98 through 101. Much of the material in these sections deals with the aftermath of the July mobbing in Missouri, especially 98 and 101. 98 comes on August 6th, 1833. And from our historical sources, best evidence is that Joseph doesn't really get news solid news on what's going on in Independence until the 9th of August when Oliver Cowdery arrives from the South. So 23rd of July is when the persecution kind of hits. Joseph doesn't get word until... Like the 9th. And so the 6th of August is the revelation of Section 98. And I love the section heading where it says, although some news of the problems in Missouri had no doubt reached the prophet in Kirtland 900 miles away, there's no way he could have known the extent of the seriousness. And so that's is, an important to, to see that. Which is astounding considering that what's in 98, because Joseph Smith produces a text about responding to adversity without even knowing the depth of that adversity. That's kind of cool. So this clearly is coming from a divine source and not from Joseph Smith's head. Now, we live in a world where we banter back and forth you know, within our own society. And there's a lot of hatred. There's a lot of anger. That's what Section 98 is all about. When do we fight back? When do we take up arms? When do we hire a lawyer? When do we become aggressive? When is conflict justified? Notice in verse 36 is the point where, at that point, you are justified. Then I, the Lord, would give unto them a commandment and justify them in going out to battle against that nation, tongue, or people. Now, once you're justified, once you've done it the Lord's way, look at verse 37. I, the Lord, would fight their battles and their children's battles and their children's children's until they had avenged themselves on all their enemies to the third and the fourth generation. Simply put, if you do it the Lord's way, you get the Lord's help. If you don't do it the Lord's way, you're on your own. Now, you may succeed. You may win the lawsuit, but you did it without divine assistance. And I, for one, want the Lord on my side every single time. If you want the Lord's help in disciplining your children, you've got to do it the Lord's way. If there's a conflict with a teacher at school, or if you're bantering with a neighbor or someone on social media, and it's becoming an ugly, aggressive attack, if you want the Lord's help in the conflict, then we have to do it the Lord's way. And the Lord has established certain rules as to when He will help us. When are we justified? This is a subject that came up in the Book of Mormon. This law, if you'll notice in verse 32, this is the law I gave unto my servant Nephi, and thy fathers, Joseph and Jacob and Isaac and Abraham and all mine ancient prophets and apostles. This has been in effect from the very beginning. But notice he says, I gave this to Nephi. Today, we're just going to do a brief recap of what what is taught in the Book of Mormon, and then we're going to add what's explained here in section 98. But if you're interested, you can go back to our Book of Mormon podcast on Alma chapter 43, where we give the full explanation of when is conflict justified. 
And so, by the way, this is episode 64. So that's why we're doing it a little quickly. So turn with me back to Alma chapter 43. We'll do this fairly quickly. Let me suggest that the Lord through the book of Mormon is suggesting that rule number one and rule number two are critical, but they're not stated in the text. They kind of have to be implied by the Nephites and the Lamanites. So I would suggest that rule number one is that you have to have the right attitude or the right emotion in your heart. Now, the Lamanites are always going to portray the wrong attitude and the wrong emotion. So what is the emotion that Zarahemna and the Lamanites have in their hearts? Alma chapter 43, verse 7 says they were filled with hatred. Verse 8 says anger. And may I suggest that if you are walking into the conflict with hatred or anger in your heart, you are not justified and the Lord will not be with you. Now contrast that with the Nephites, who always had the right attitude. Now there's not an opposite to hatred and anger. You don't go into conflict with happiness and joy. That's not the opposite here. The opposite of going into conflict with hatred and anger is to go in the conflict reluctant, hesitant. I don't want to do this, but I feel compelled that I have to. I like the word that's used where it talks about they were compelled or obliged. Yeah, so verse 13, we find the word compelled. Verse 14 of Alma chapter 43, we find the word obliged. In chapter 44, you hear Captain Moroni say, we do not desire to be men of blood. We don't seek your blood. They're actually trying to save life. And then probably the best one, I love in Alma chapter 48, that beautiful chapter on the character of Captain Moroni, verse 21, he was compelled reluctantly. And I think that's the right attitude. I don't want to have to say this to you. I don't want to have to sue you, or I don't want to call the principal, or I don't want to call the teacher, or go knock on my neighbor's door. It's kind of the opposite today where we want to zing you. We want to record you saying something and post it to social media, and it's like, why don't you just talk to the person? Yeah. So rule number one is what's in my heart, my attitude. Rule number two is the reason I'm going to sue you, the reason I'm going to call the principal, or the reason I'm going to get involved in this conflict. So what is the reason? So let's quickly do the wrong reasons, illustrated by the Lamanites. Chapter 43 of Alma again, verse 8, Moroni makes clear that their reason was for power over the Nephites, or bondage, or verse 10, they wanted to destroy Or verse 29, they wanted to rule over them. And then there's one you're going to find when the stripling warriors enter the conflict. In chapter 54, verse 24, they wanted to avenge. So think about that. If your reason is to hurt, to cause pain, to have power over, to destroy, to embarrass or humiliate, if your reason is that person's pain, and humiliation, you are not justified and you are not going to get the Lord's help. You're on your own. You may win the lawsuit, but you're doing it on your own. If your motive is the pain of someone else or power over them, or sometimes teachers discipline a student in class by humiliating them in front of their peers, 
well, that'll get me to obey. That's for sure. I will certainly quiet up if you humiliate me in front of my peers, but you will not have the Lord's help if that's your approach. Now let's contrast that with the Nephites. What is the right reason or motive? And there really is only one, but it's, it's illustrated with three wonderful words. Alma chapter 43, verse 9, and then verse 30. And now the design of the Nephites was to support their lands and their houses and their wives and their children, that they might preserve them from the hands of their enemies, and also that they might preserve their rights and their privileges. Now, if you go down to verse 30 of Alma 43, he adds the word only. It was the only desire of the Nephites to preserve their lands and their liberties in their church. I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to embarrass you. I'm not trying to destroy you. I just am trying to maintain and preserve my children and my family and our rights. My child has a right to go to school and feel safe, and I'm trying to maintain that safety. Now, the second word is down in verse 47, where the Lord says, ye shall defend your families, even unto bloodshed. Therefore, for this cause were the Nephites contending with their Lamanites to defend, preserve and defend. There's one more in Alma chapter 53, when the stripling warriors join the conflict, they join to protect So preserve, defend, and protect are the words used to describe the Nephite's motive or the reason for the conflict. I'm trying to preserve or defend or protect. So those are rules number one and rules number two. Now that you're not going to find in the Doctrine and Covenants, which is why we felt we needed to come back to Alma to preface that. You have to have the right emotion in your heart. If your emotion is anger, you're on your own. You have to have the right motive in your heart. If your motive is the pain of someone else, you're not going to get the Lord's help. Now, rule number three becomes the whole main point of section 98. Mormon, in his commentary on this conflict, describes rule number three in Alma chapter 43, verse 46. They were doing that which they had felt was the duty which they owed to their God. For the Lord had said unto them, see, the Lord revealed this law. The Lord had said unto them and also unto their fathers that inasmuch as you are not guilty of the first offense, neither the second. Now that's the emphasis here. You can't be the one that strikes first, but you also can't be the one that strikes back. Inasmuch as you are not guilty of the first offense, neither the second, ye shall not suffer yourselves to be slain by the hands of your enemies. Now think about that. What is the emotion in my heart when I strike back? Mike, you played a lot of basketball and athletics. When you get elbowed and then you elbow back, which one usually gets called? The referee always sees the guy who reacts. It's it's just like one of those rules. I'm going to date myself here, but it was always Bill Lambeer would always, he played for the Pistons and he would step on somebody's foot, like Larry Bird, or it doesn't really matter who. And then Lambeer would just act like this was just like, what? What? I didn't do anything. And anyway, the ref would always get the other guy. And so 
I see what you're saying with this is like, if I'm the second striker, if I'm retaliating, first of all, I've got revenge in my heart. I want to ma- I want to get even. You're right? breaking the first two rules. Yeah. When you break rule number three, you break the first two rules because usually the emotion in your heart is anger. Yeah. If I accidentally elbowed you in the game, I didn't mean to. But you now go down to the other end. You're angry at me. You're mad. And you purposely elbow me because yes. you want to get even. And then Lambeer acts like he just got wrecked, right? He just throws his head back and shouts. And anyway, the ref but gets he knows the But he knows how to get the foul called yes. on the other person. He's not. And that's the rule. That's kind of this third rule that you can't be guilty of the second strike. <laughs> you can't retaliate. That is not going to get the Lord's help into the conflict because your emotion will be wrong and your motive will be wrong. And so the Lord doesn't necessarily give us those first two laws in section 98 because I think they're kind of assumed in the third law. If you strike back, you are going to be filled with anger and your motive is going to be revenge. And you kind of have some of that in 41 through 44, right? Where he's saying, forgive him. Yeah, he's Keep forgiving if, if he repents. Yep. So now let's go to section 98 and see this same thing that we saw in the Book of Mormon here in the Doctrine and Covenants. Now, let me remind you, real people have been hurt and harmed, tarred and feathered. People that we love in church history have been harmed by the Missourians. And so verse 22, we begin the law of when is conflict justified. So the Lord says, If you observe to do whatsoever I command you, I, the Lord, will turn away all wrath and indignation from you, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. That's a summary of, if you do it my way, you get my help. So here's the Lord's way. Verse 23, I speak unto you concerning your families. If men will smite you or your families once, and ye bear it patiently and revile not against them. In other words, you didn't strike back. You're not guilty of the second offense. Neither seek ye revenge. Ye shall be rewarded. Now, do you see all three laws written into that one verse? If men smite you or your families once, and ye bear it patiently and revile not against them, neither seek revenge, ye shall be rewarded. But if not, so here's the opposite. If you break rule number three, if as soon as you were attacked, you attack back. As soon as someone said something mean about you on social media, you immediately said something mean about them. As soon as you were attacked, as soon as someone offended you, but if you bear it not patiently, it shall be accounted unto you as being meted out as a just measure unto you. You deserve each other. You're no better than the person who attacked. It's meted out as a just measure against you because you have the same thing in your heart. And I'm not going to help you. You guys deserve each other. In fact, the only difference is you did it second. And often, <laughs> like when kids say, Well, he hit me first, I'm like, Yeah, but you hit him back. You both hit each other. And in our family, we've learned that the second striker usually gets the bigger punishment because you usually strike back with venom, with added purpose. And your hit is probably harder than the first hit. 
So you deserve each other. Can I just say this, Bryce? I hate being a referee as a dad. Like I tell my kids when they were little all the time, I'm like, I just want to be a dad. I don't want to be a referee. Yeah. But you have to be a referee when you're a parent. It's just one of those things. And in our family, we've had this conversation many times about you're the second striker. My my children know exactly what that means. Why am I in more trouble than him? He hit me first. You're the second striker. So the Lord says, okay, you can't be the guilty of the second offense. But now in our day, the Lord takes this law up two more notches. Not only can I not be guilty of the second offense, but the Lord says, I can't be guilty of the third or the fourth. Verse 25, I can't be guilty of the third offense. So let's count them. If your enemy shall smite you the second time, and you revile not against your enemy, and you bear it patiently, your reward shall be a hundredfold. In other words, after two strikes against me, I don't strike back. I'm not the third strike. Now one more. If he shall smite you the third time, and you bear it patiently, your reward shall be doubled unto you fourfold. Now notice verse 28. There is something I'm supposed to do here. If that enemy shall escape my vengeance, that he be not brought into judgment before me. So if the police don't catch him, or if the principal doesn't stop the teacher at this point, or if someone else doesn't stop them from moving forward, if justice has not been met after three strikes, then you shall see to it that you warn him in my name, that he come no more upon you, neither upon your family. So after three we warn. I don't think the Lord is counting here. I don't think that's the point. Oh, wait, one more, and then I can strike back. I think the spirit of this is that we are doing all that we can to preserve peace, to seek for peace. But if after three strikes, nothing has happened, I warn my enemy. Now, verse 31, Nevertheless, thine enemy is in thine hands. If you reward him according to his work, so if I now strike back, thou art, here's our magical word, ready? Justified. Now I call the lawyer and I I start the lawsuit. Now I start to take action. Now I'm going to go meet with the principal and demand major changes happen in my child's classroom. Or now I knock on my neighbor. Whatever the conflict is, I have been patient. I have the right attitude. I have the right motive. I haven't struck back. I'm not reacting. I'm justified. You know, war is never good, but war can be justified. I don't think the Lord glories in warfare. I think that's the adversary. But I think there are times when you have to defend yourself. And when we talked about Mormon, the prophet that lived anciently, there was a time when the Nephites wanted him to lead out on the offensive against the Lamanites. And he says, I'm not going to lead you guys. And he just, he resigned, said, I'm not going to do it. He knew that the Lord wouldn't be with us. If we break this law, the Lord will not be with us. And I'm not going to fight this battle without the Lord's help. Yeah. So I think, Bryce, it's important that we reiterate that this is very relevant in today's cancel culture and today's 
social media world where people are just on the attack. And some people do uh, relish in it. They'll say, oh, look at this thread. It's so funny. These people are just blasting each other. And I, I have to admit, I've done that before where I thought, oh, that's really funny. But when you think about it, no, it isn't. These are actual people and they're just castigating each other back and forth. And it may be entertaining, but I think the Lord would say, yeah, those are my children. Like this is not something that we should glory in. Look at verse two waiting patiently on the Lord. Like, we should be patient. Yeah. Now, let me be clear. There is an exception to this rule, and the Lord gives that to us in Scripture. So maybe we ought to mention the exception, because I know some of you are out there listening and saying, well, what about, well, what about? And you're thinking about the exception. So, and again, I don't think the Lord's counting here as much as there's a spirit here of not seeking revenge. But here's the exception. In Doctrine and Covenants section 134, Verse 11, Joseph writes the following, which is the exception. He says, We believe that men should appeal to the civil law for redress of all wrongs and grievances, where personal abuse is inflicted or the right of property or character is infringed, where such laws exist as will protect the same. In other words, don't take the law into your own hands. Let the law handle it. But... We believe that all men are justified in defending themselves, their friends, and their property, and the government from the unlawful assault and encroachments of all persons in times of exigency, where immediate appeal cannot be made to the laws and relief afforded. In other words, the Lord says, look, of course there are exceptions to this. If a guy breaks into my house, I'm not going to wait till he physically assaults one of my children three times before I stop him. This is a time of exigency. But in those neighborhood quarrels, in the lawsuits that were so quick to file for revenge, maybe we ought to pause and not seek the revenge. So yes, there is an exception, and there there are times of exigency. So let's just put that up there. But I think the spirit of this is... The Lord does not help us when our hearts are filled with revenge and anger. And one of the best ways to make sure your heart is not filled with revenge or anger is to not be guilty of the second, the third, or the fourth strikes. Yeah. Now, I want to talk about the idea, and I think sometimes we do a disservice in the church when we talk about the persecutions in Missouri, as if we just walked in there and we did nothing wrong, and these guys attacked us, and we're completely innocent. I think historically we need to look at this with a a fresh set of eyes. In other words, there's no issue that's so thin that it can't be sliced into two sides. There's two sides to this. Yeah. Moroni said, condemn me not for mine imperfections, neither condemn my father for his imperfections. Rather give thanks unto God that our imperfections have been made known, that you may learn to be more wise. In that spirit, we need to look at even the church's wrongdoings even the members of the church, not to condemn them, but to say, look, part of what happened in Missouri is our fault. And if we're ever going to fix it, we've got to learn from that and not repeat those same mistakes. So in that spirit, Mike, we really ought to be aware of some of the mistakes we made in Missouri. I I think that's fair. Uh, And we're back to this golden clay principle that the clay, the goodness of God is in the scriptures and it's in the church, and it's in the leaders, but so is clay. We are tabernacles of clay. We are people, and that's our church history. It's it's divine, but it's also very human, and it's very messy. And so Richard Bushman has really 
brought out a lot of these things. And so he wrote a book called Joseph Smith, Rough Stone Rolling. And it's a great historical reference to kind of get into the mind of these early Latter-day Saints. People like John Coral and Edward Partridge, Orson Hyde, getting into the mind of Joseph Smith and his letters. I mean, this historian has done a lot of work here. And he essentially lays out some of these things that are pretty difficult, but we need to acknowledge that right around the summer of 1833, there were about a thousand Latter-day Saints in that area. And maybe 20, 25% of the population was Latter-day Saint. And there was a lot of tension that perhaps that these individuals, these Latter-day Saints would vote as a block. And so this is Bushman. He says, the revelation calling for the gathering to Missouri used the word enemies to describe the current residents. And indeed, they were becoming so. The Mormons spoke of the land being redeemed by its rightful inheritors. The Evening and Morning Star wrote matter-of-factly about taking possession of this country. Josiah Gregg, a merchant living in Independence at the time, said that the Mormons grew bolder in their predictions as their numbers increased. At last, they became so emboldened by impunity, as openly to boast of their determination to be the sole proprietors of the land of Zion. By summer of 1833, the saints held over 2,400 acres of land in and around Independence and threatened to completely take over the land. Many members of the church would say things like, well, we're God's people and we're here to build Zion. And that could cause a lot of tension with the people that live there, And they probably thought that their way of life was being threatened. And then you add to this that W.W. Phelps posted an article in the Evening and Morning Star about the legal requirements of bringing free people of color into the state of Missouri. And that caused a lot of tension. And so on July 15th, the local citizens posted a manifesto with a copy presented to the saints, signed by about 300 of the residents. And they called for a mass meeting on July 20th. That background, and I really appreciate Bushman fleshing this out. We can teach it in such a way so that it's not, this just came out of nowhere. The, The saints were educated and they were literate and it was a clash of cultures. And those things certainly existed. But it's not like the Missourians just woke up one day and said, let's kill these guys. No, they had their reasons. And I think understanding their reasons helps to give us a balanced approach to what's happening here. And I think we can take the same thing today. I think sometimes extremes in religion can be dangerous. So I think that possibly the saints came in with the Lord is with us. We felt the spirit. We have this religious enthusiasm. We're going to prepare Zion for God's return. And they probably came in with a little bit of religious imbalance. This is our right. We're going to come in and it, this is like you said, this we is have our a right. right to this land. And I don't, I'm, I, I wasn't there, but I wouldn't be surprised if we were a little cliquish, a little clannish, and we didn't we didn't foster and maintain and cultivate friendships with these individuals because we get there, the church is organized in 1830, in three short years, we're getting pushed out of the county. And I see this as maybe we were a little bit too on the rights side of the scale. We didn't accept the responsibility of good citizenship. Yeah. So let's talk about that because that is a major subject of section 98 that often gets missed as we read it. We get so focused on the Missouri conflict that we don't hear this absolute gem of a gospel principle. 
So let me draw your attention, starting in verse 5, section 98, verse 5. This law, the law of the land, needs to be followed. Then he starts talking about constitutional law. Ready? So let me read it. And that law of the land, which is constitutional, supporting that principle of freedom in maintaining rights and privileges, belongs to all mankind and is justifiable before me. I, the Lord, justify you and your brethren of my church in befriending the law, which is the constitutional law of the land, supporting that principle of freedom in maintaining rights and privileges. In other words, the law maintains rights and privileges. The Constitution of the United States of America declares that individuals have certain rights and privileges, and that we should befriend the law that maintains rights and privileges. But there is another side to rights and privileges. There is a balance to rights and privileges. And today we live in a world where everybody is shaking their fist for rights. Grant me my rights. They skip the other part. So jump to section 101, which we'll come to in just a minute, but he again addresses constitutional law in section 101. And this is where he talks about the fact that he established the Constitution by wise men that he rose up. And the reason he established the Constitution, so section 101, starting in verse 77, according to the laws and constitution of the people, which I have suffered to be established and should be maintained for the rights and protection of all flesh. So that's over here on one side of the scale, rights and privileges and protection according to just and holy principles. And then over here on the other side, it says that every man may act in doctrine and principle pertaining to futurity according to the moral agency which I have given unto him, that every man may be accountable for his own sins in the day of judgments. In other words, there is a balance to rights and privileges, and that is responsibility. If we lose that balance— we're in trouble. Now go back to section 98. Yes, the Constitution was designed to protect rights and privileges. But if we lose the balance, notice what he says in verse 10. Honest men and wise men should be sought for diligently, and good men and wise men. In other words, we've got to keep that balance. Otherwise, whatever is less than these things cometh of evil. And then back to verse 7, as pertaining to law of man, whatsoever is more or less than this cometh of evil. And I think what the Lord is trying to say is when that scale tips in either direction, it's not good and bad things are going to happen. If we tip too far in the side of rights and privileges and ignore responsibilities, That's bad. Bad things are going to happen. That's when evil reigns. On the other hand, if we require more of our citizens than we we require them to be more responsible and we rob rights and privileges, then we've tipped too far the other direction. We have to have wise and honest people in those positions. And if we don't, it doesn't matter what we do. So, So you can't have more, right? You have to have Honest and wise, that's what you have to have. Anything less is going to be bad. But then that distinction in verse 7, more or less than that scale, right? Rights and privileges on one side, but then I have to act a certain way on the other. Now, in the show notes, 
we put a ton of this stuff by President Benson because he's probably been the most vocal about what the Constitution does and why it's inspired and and how it has cultivated uh, the greatest. I mean, think about this. In the last couple hundred years, we went from horse and buggy and wind power to where we are today, right? And, and the reason why, the, the great leap forward has to do with this. But there's a cost. We ha- There's something we have to do. And he basically says three things. And it's like what you're talking about. He says, the first thing we have to do is be righteous and moral. We have to live gospel principles, all of them. And the second thing is we have to learn the principles of the Constitution and then abide by them. And he basically says, how can we abide by them if we don't read it? We've got to read the Constitution and know what it, what it says. And he lays out some really good arguments as far as like what it says. But then he says this, the third thing, he says, we have to become involved in civic affairs. As citizens of this republic, we cannot do our duty and just be idle spectators. And I think sometimes it's really easy to complain, but at some point we have to actually do something. We're back to this idea of that it's participatory. And Bryce, I love how you mentioned we always clamor for rights, but if it's a seesaw, and all we're talking about is rights, we're not balanced. No. There's the other side is we have to do our part. And we have to accept responsibility. Sometimes we have to say, yes, that is a right I could pursue, but I accept the responsibility. For example, speed limits. I have the right to drive my car as fast as I want because I own it. That's my right. But I don't have the right to interfere with your safety. I need to accept the responsibility of your safety. And so I choose to drive the speed limit. There's the balance. Now, if the speed limit is set so that it infringes my rights or it doesn't protect, then the government needs to fix that. Even in the home, think about what this means to our children. I saw this a lot in the classroom, and I would say to my students, you have a right to your cell phone. You have a right to use your phone that your family is paying for but you don't have the right to interfere with the lesson and the people around you who you are going to distract. So accept the responsibility of being a good member of this class and put your phone away. That is, seems to be the missing part of our society right now, is the unwillingness to accept responsibility. Everyone is clamoring for rights, rights, rights. And not very many people are accepting the responsibility. I'm going to throw out my opinion. This is totally Bryce Dunford's opinion. I accept full responsibility for this. But Joseph Smith's prophecy that the Constitution will dangle by a thread and that this people, the Latter-day Saints, will save it, I believe what that means is there will be so many people clamoring for rights and privileges that the Constitution will be about to lose its power. And that's when the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints will step forward and say, no, we will accept the responsibilities and we will balance that. As an example, there is a beautiful address from the well-known author William Faulkner to the Delta Council in Cleveland, Mississippi, back in the 50s that we will include in the show notes. I wish I could read it. It's one of my favorite things to read on this subject, but it's very lengthy. He talks about the fact that we declared ourselves independent states because we wanted to be free and independent, but that we accepted the responsibility that would come with those freedoms. But then he goes on to say that as times passed, 
we kind of forgot. And now we've become a society that is clamoring all about rights. And that's all we seem to hear about. It's a very lengthy quote. It's very wonderful. I'd really encourage you to read it in the show notes, but we just don't have the time to read it here. And it's brilliant. And he hit the nail right on the head. And we as Latter-day Saints have to be the moral people who say we accept the responsibility and lay it on our own shoulders to do not just what is best for ourselves, but what is best for all of us to be responsible. So we voluntarily give up some rights and freedoms that we could claim in order to be responsible and own that and the good of society. So applying this historically to the saints in Missouri, I think reading Richard Bushman, I see this as maybe we were a little bit too on the rights side of the scale. We didn't accept the responsibility of good citizenship, yeah. of good neighbors. Now, Edward Partridge was there. He's the presiding authority down there. And he talks a lot about this, how they were pushed out. And he says, our situation is critical. We're located upon the Western limits of the state and of the United States where desperados can commit outrages and even murder. And then he talks more about how we can't bear it patiently any longer. The mobs are coming to get us. And so this was a really difficult time. Now, Joseph receives word that many people are killed and there's lots of rumors going on. But on November 19th, Edward Partridge, John Coral, and W.W. Phelps write that they only knew of one Latter-day Saint who was killed, and that was Andrew Barber, who was killed during the mobbing of Jackson County. But also we read that Philo Dibble had been shot in the in the belly and had been wounded, but he's miraculously going to be healed. So that news that comes to Joseph, it comes to Joseph in December, but the letter was written in, on November 19th. But during the course of time of this violence, only Andrew Barber is killed, but we lose everything. I mean, we get kicked out of the county. Uh, we get kicked north. Some of the saints try to go south. But I think it's good to read Edward Partridge and see his point of view as he's talking about this. And I don't want to seem like a hater, but I, I want to also emphasize, I don't think that the wrath of the Missourians just came out of nowhere. I, I can certainly see how this has happened. And as I've been thinking about these things and listening to Bryce share that quote by William Faulkner, I've thought about myself. How many times have I been a neighbor that didn't reach out, that didn't cultivate friendship? And I'm guilty of this. I, I, I sit here convicted and go, I, I got to do better because I think these conflicts don't just come out of nowhere. There's a great quote where a woman comes to Joseph and she comes to him and she says, these people are saying these horrible things about me and I've done nothing wrong. And Joseph gives great counsel. Yeah. He tells the woman what he does when that happens. He says, when an enemy had told a scandalous story about him, which had often been done, before he rendered judgment, he paused and let his mind run back to the time and place and setting of the story to see if he had not, by some unguarded word or act, laid the block on which the story was built. If he found he had done so, he said that in his heart he then forgave his enemy and felt thankful that he had received a warning of a weakness that he had not known he possessed. Now, that's tremendous. That's accepting the responsibility. Did I do something that caused this conflict? Then he said to the sister that he would have her do the same, search her memory thoroughly and see if she had not herself unconsciously laid the foundation for the scandal which annoyed her. 
The sister thought deeply for a few moments and then confessed that she believed that she had. Then the prophet told her that in her heart she should forgive that brother who had risked his own good name and her friendship to give her this clearer view of herself. The sister thanked her advisor and went away in peace. Now, that's just tremendous counsel from a prophet about being the moral agent and being responsible. In all of this, we have to say, can we pick up the baton that perhaps they dropped and finish the race? Can we learn the lesson? Can we learn the lesson of Jackson County and be the people that the Lord was hoping they would be? It sure seems to me that the Lord sent them out to Missouri knowing that they weren't going to build Zion, but knowing that their flaws would be revealed in the failure and that we would learn from them and be better. Will you ponder your opportunities to balance rights and privileges? I will play my part. I will do what I need to do to be a good citizen. That's the lesson we have to learn. Bryce, on a personal level, this is family. Like I may be right in this argument with a member of my family or my extended family, but sometimes my job is to cultivate and to grow the relationship and not worry about who's right. Classic example, there was a musical that makes fun of our faith that's very popular on Broadway. And what did the church do? We didn't attack. We actually put in an advertisement that says, okay, you've seen the musical. Now would you like to read the Book of Mormon? We actually tried to make friends with these people. And to me, I see that as a, as a more positive approach than coming out with swords. And so I think if we read Section 98 that way and we make it more personal, I think it becomes more relevant. But it's also difficult because when we start talking like this, we see our flaws. We look in the mirror and we think, oh man, I don't do that. It's tough. And be careful that we don't overcorrect, because if we're clamoring for rights and then we overcorrect and accept too much responsibility, don't let go of rights that we should hold on to. There's a balance here between rights and responsibilities. And if we start tipping, the goal isn't to tip the other direction. Find that balance between what do you need to do to be justified in the conflict, that you obey the laws relative to getting the Lord on your side. That's section 98, such a beautiful entry into the Doctrine and Covenants. Okay, that's so good. I have so much more on Exodus and Fourfold and Children's Children, and we'll do it when we get to um, the Old Testament. Section 99 is a great revelation to a man by the name of John Murdoch, and if you remember, uh, his wife, Julia Clapp Murdoch, dies giving birth to twins, and Emma, Emma Smith, gives birth to twins that die. And so Joseph and Emma adopt Julia Clapp Murdoch's children, and John Murdoch goes on missions. And in this revelation, the Lord tells John Murdoch that it's not expedient that you should go on this mission until your children are provided for and sent up kindly unto the bishop in Zion. So his children are actually in Missouri when he does go on his mission and preach. I would refer you to the show notes in specifics of where he serves and when he serves. Now, there's a picture of him that you can see, and it's taken in 1850 when he's about 58. Now, just as somebody who admires these pictures of church history, I got to say, John Murdoch has great hair for a guy of 58. But anyway, in his life, he actually had an experience where, a sacred experience, where he was given a promise in the school of the prophets. 
And in this promise, he was told that he would see the Savior. And he did. He says, I saw the form of a man, the Savior, most lovely. The visage of his face was sound and fair as the sun. His hair, a bright silver gray, curled in the most majestic form. His eyes, a keen, penetrating blue, and the skin of his neck, a most beautiful white, as he was covered from the neck to the feet with a loose garment, pure white, whiter than any garment I had ever seen before. His countenance was most penetrating and yet most lovely. John Murdoch's experience with the Savior carried over in his life. He served faithfully in the church. When the saints were called to go down to Zion to help redeem it, he served and he went to Zion's camp and he eventually did see his children again. He served as a bishop in Nauvoo and later in a stake presidency in Lima. And then he actually he actually went on a mission to Australia. And think about that because that's before planes. I mean, we're talking get on a boat and just we'll see you later. He does go eventually west with the saints. He was ordained a patriarch in 1854. And for over 13 years of his life, he gave people patriarchal blessings in Utah County. John Murdoch, a very faithful fellow. And in this section, the Lord is mindful of his children and that his children are taken care of. And as someone who loves the Old Testament, that is one of the many faces of who the God of the Old Testament is. He's very concerned about widows and children. Here's a faithful Latter-day Saint who wants to go and spread the gospel, yet he has these children that need to be taken care of, and so they are. And so that's John Murdoch. Section 100, Joseph is headed to what's called the Canada Mission in the fall of 1833. And there's this really cool promise in here where it says this. This is in verse 3. Behold and lo, I have much people in this place, in the regions round about, and an effectual door shall be opened in the regions round about in this eastern land. Therefore I, the Lord, have suffered you to come to this place, for thus it was expedient in me for the salvation of souls. And one of the things that's interesting about the effectual door that's being opened is through this missionary experience and later through Parley P. Pratt's work in Canada, it opens the door to meet an individual by the name of John Taylor and another woman by the name of Mary Fielding. Now, Mary Fielding is going to eventually marry Hiram Smith. And through that union, they will have a child and it will be Joseph Fielding Smith, but we refer to him as Joseph F. Smith, because he's going to have a son named Joseph Fielding Smith. And in the church, we call the father Joseph F. and the son Joseph Fielding, but they both have the same name. The sixth and the tenth presidents of the church. Right. And so this mission is opening the door for what will come two years later when Parley P. Pratt brings in those individuals and many more. Now we turn to section 101, where the Lord answers the question, what about Zion? There's a lot of ways to approach this. This is a lengthy section. The Lord gets into a lot of detail and teaches some wonderful doctrines. I'm going to walk through it chronologically. Let's focus in three time periods. Time period number one is what happened to them in 1833. Why were they kicked off their lands? Why did they not build Zion? Why did the whole project of redeeming Zion and building the celestial city fail? So time period number one is 1833. Time period number two is the future. Now, they thought the future was in their day, 
and I'm going to point out that we're involved in this future. So what does the Lord say about the future of Zion, which includes 2021? That'll be time period number two. And then the Lord's going to push all the way out into the second coming of the millennium. As hard as things are now in 1833, you need to keep your mind fixed on the future of Zion and her glory. So let's kind of walk through those three time periods. Time period number one is, why has this happened? Why were the mob successful in stopping the Lord's work and they didn't build Zion? And we're not in Jackson County and there isn't a celestial city built there. So he begins in verse 2, and this is a little bit stern, and I think maybe we need the stern talk sometimes, but let's see if we can put it into perspective from the kind and loving God that he is. He says, I, the Lord, have suffered the afflictions to come upon them, wherewith they have been afflicted in consequence of their transgressions. In other words, the reason Zion wasn't built is because they were not a people ready to build Zion. Now, I'm going to approach this wholeheartedly with the attitude that I think we can talk about their failure honorably. I don't mean in any way to discredit them or to bash them. My heart goes out to those early Jackson County saints, and I love them. But I am grateful for their failure so that we as a people know what we need to do when the call comes to really build Zion. I think the Lord allowed their failures so that we know how to succeed. May I suggest that we are the ending chapter, that this is not the last chapter, and we must learn from their failures. And the Lord is constantly going to point out, verse 3, I will own them. They shall be mine in the day when I come to make up my jewels. However, verse 4, they must needs be chastened and tried even as Abraham. Verse 5, all those who will not endure chastening. If we don't learn from the challenges that we face, we will never be sanctified and we will never build Zion. What happened? Verse 6, there were jarrings, there were contentions, envyings, strifes, lustful and covetous desires among them. Therefore, by these things, they polluted their inheritance. They were not living a celestial law. Now, they're not evil people. They're not necessarily living a celestial law. The Lord isn't rejecting them. Verse 7 and 8 is an interesting insight into how God operates in times of trial. He says, they were slow to hearken unto the voice of the Lord their God. Therefore, the Lord their God is slow to hearken unto their prayers to answer them in the day of their trouble. In the day of their peace, they esteemed lightly my counsel. But in the day of their trouble, of necessity, they feel after me. We cannot be the people that turn to God only in the day of trouble. The lesson seems to be God will answer our prayers appropriately and deservedly. God will answer our prayers in the day of trouble as earnestly and as diligently as we prayed and obeyed in the day of peace. I remind you, we've said this a lot of times, prophets often speak in a day of peace. The command to leave Jerusalem came in a day of peace before the Babylonians showed up. 
The command to leave Zarahemla came in a day of peace before the fire showed up. The command to get on a boat came in a day of peace before the rain showed up. Prophets always speak in the day of peace. If we do not heed their counsel in the day of peace, we will not have solutions in the day of trouble. That's what broke them, and we've got to learn that lesson. We have to learn. So now I'm going to jump forward to verse 41. I'm going to stay with 1833. Let's learn from 1833. Verse 41, here is wisdom concerning the children of Zion. Even many, but not all, they were found transgressors, therefore they must needs be chastened. He that exalteth his himself shall be abased, and he that abaseth himself shall be exalted. I will show unto you a parable that you may know my will concerning the redemption of Zion. So here's what happened. And I would plead with every Latter-day Saint to open their ears, because the Lord is about to say, here's why they didn't build Zion. And until this is not true among the saints, we will not build Zion. So this is the key. The Lord is handing us the key. If you want to build the greatest city that has ever been built, the safest, cleanest city, here is the key to do so. I will show unto you my will concerning a parable. So verse 44, I'm going to paraphrase quickly. A certain nobleman had a spot of land, very choice, go into my vineyard and plant 12 olive trees and set watch man. Now that's plural. And the watch man are down round about the trees and build a tower that one may overlook the land round about to be a watch Man, that's singular. So set up watchmen and then set up a watchman. You and I are the watchmen that surround the trees. We are the young men's leaders and the young women's leaders. We're the primary leaders. We're the bishops and the Relief Society presidents. We are the watchmen that surround the tree to protect it. But what we need is a watchman on a tower. We need two things, a tower and a watchman. And so verse 46, they start, they plant, they build the hedge, they set the watchman and begin to build the tower. And then come the questions. Why do we need a tower? Why do we need the covenants of the temple? Why do we need a prophet? Why do we need some old guy? Verse end of verse 47, what need hath my Lord of this tower? Couldn't we do other things? Couldn't we feed the poor and serve the needy? Couldn't we do other things if we didn't put the money into this tower? What need hath my Lord of this tower? Seeing this is a time of peace. Do you, you go back to those first three verses. I don't need someone to see the enemy coming because there's no enemy. I don't need a prophet's eyes to see what I can't see because there's no enemy. Today's a day of peace. And then the conclusion, verse 49, that some modern-day members of the church are coming to as well. We don't need these things. We don't need the covenants of the house of the Lord. We don't need a temple, and we don't need to follow the prophet. Verse 50, while they were at variance one with another. Sound familiar? While they were at variance one with another, they became very slothful and they hearkened not unto the commandments of their Lord. 
Now watch the rebuke that the Lord gives. The enemy comes by night, breaks down the hedge, frightens the watchmen, and they flee, and the enemy destroys the Lord's work and breaks down the olive tree. When he shows up, he says, notice in verse 52, why? Not why question mark, it's why exclamation mark. It's not why, it's why? What? is the cause of this great evil. Ought you not to have done even as I commanded? And he focuses on the two things they didn't do. Shouldn't you have built the tower and set the watchman on the tower? And he would have watched. Now, verse 54 is one of the most tragic verses of Jackson County, but may I suggest it is the very tragedy of our day today. Had you listened to the prophet, you would have avoided the enemy. Yeah. You know, in retrospect, we can look back and see Joseph details exactly what Zion must do to be safe, that he was giving them warnings over and over again. Now, I think it's important to see the date. Section 101 is December of 1833, and the main violence happens in July. So, the violence doesn't end in July. It continues. So they're still there. They're still in Missouri. And they tell the Missourians, hey, we're going to leave January 1st. If you go to the show notes to the historical background of Section 101, we give several excerpts from letters prior to the violence of 1833 where Joseph details exactly what Zion must do. The big warning in Section 101 is the temple. And Joseph's writing letters, he's communicating, hey, do everything you can in your power to hold on to the land, even though you've signed this document saying you're going to leave. Appeal to the officials, go all the way to Governor Dunklin, and if he won't accept it, keep appealing and appeal to those that have authority. Now, historically, this is a problem because in August of 1833, Oliver gets to Kirtland and he tells Joseph about what's going on. And so Joseph tells the saints, go talk to Governor Dunklin. So the Missouri saints do. They petition him. They review the breakdown of order and they request a a number of troops. But the governor's response, he basically says, no, I'm not going to send any troops. Rather, he encourages them, the saints, to go and apply redress to their local officials. Many of these who are actually members of the mob. He says, I would advise you to make a trial of the efficacy of the laws. The judge of your circuit is a conservator of the peace. Obtain a warrant. Let it be placed in the hands of the proper officer. He basically says, you know, I'm not going to help you guys out. So what do the saints do? And this is, in my opinion, really the precursor to Philo Dibble getting shot and Andrew Barber being killed. On October 30th, 1833, the saints do this. They actually go and they retain a law firm to represent them, the firm of Wood, Reese, Donovan, and Atchison. Now, those two names are really big in church history. To pursue their case in the courts of law, within hours of them getting this firm to represent them, the message was given to the mob that this had happened, and the mob's interpretation of them getting legal counsel is, oh, no, you didn't. You guys promised you'd be gone. Now you're hiring legal counsel? Oh, it's on. And so by them following Joseph's counsel to go and retain counsel, a lawyer, that's going to be the precursor to the violence on Halloween, October 31st, 1833. It sent the message to the mob that the saints weren't going to leave. 
And so on October 31st, on Halloween, these mobbers descend upon the saints. And for the next two weeks, they go about burning homes. From historical sources, we know that about 200 homes of the Latter-day Saints were burned with a total estimated damage of about $175,000. And about 1,200 saints were scattered across the prairies, all across the Missouri River in Clay, Van Buren, and other counties in Missouri. And so them actually retaining legal counsel exacerbated the violence against them. Joseph Smith receives, you know, different accounts of what's happening during this time period, but then he sends elders Orson Hyde and John Gold from Kirtland down to Missouri to get the full story from Edward Partridge. And he's worried about their welfare, and we see some of that in section 100 of the Doctrine and Covenants where the Lord says that they're going to be okay. But historically, just understanding that the violence doesn't end in July. It continues. But I think historically also, we need to realize that the saints' actions, what they were doing in real time, besides not building the temple, their actions also helped to exacerbate this. Now, I'm not saying that they're all at fault. Obviously, there's two sides to this. My question I often ask, and Bryce, I don't know how to answer this, but I think, what would have happened if Joseph was in Zion? You see, Joseph's in Kirtland, the temple gets built. I can kind of see Edward Partridge thinking, Joseph, we need you here. I think Joseph being there, you know, we would have a whole different historical narrative. And the other question I have is, what if Edward Partridge was the kind of leader where he could have gotten the temple built? Could they have alleviated war? Because then that leads to another question. Let's say they do build a temple and Zion does get built. Could the temple have alleviated civil war? Because this nation's going to tear itself apart in a few years with the civil war and Missouri is going to get wrecked. Answering that question, I'm going to throw in a few verses from section 101. The Lord says in verse 85, thus will I liken the children of Zion. He talks about the importuning woman and the judge. In other words, go plead your case until you get your way. Let them importune at the feet of the judge, and if he heed them not, let them importune at the feet of the governor. And if the governor heed them not, let them importune at the feet of the president, which Joseph will do. He will go to Washington, D.C., And if the president heed them not, now, is this a prophecy of civil war? I don't know. I think so. Read it carefully. If the president heed them not, then will the Lord arise and come forth out of his hiding place and in his fury vex the nation. The only vexing of the nation that I can think of that might be tied to these verses is the civil war that flows within about 30 years after this. Had the temple been built, had the president defended the saints in Jackson County, is it that verse 89 kind of suggests that we would have avoided the Civil War? I don't know. I think what we can do is turn to ourselves and say, am I learning the lessons and am I avoiding the future potential conflicts in my life because I'm not repeating the same mistakes? Because we can't change history, but we can take this and apply in our life. So I think that's a valuable lesson. Okay, so that's them in there. That's time period number one. Now everyone's left with the question, okay, where do we go now? What's the future of Zion? Now the Lord continued that parable. I'm going to draw a distinction between 54 and 55. Verse 54 is clearly in their day, the watchman would have seen the enemy while he was afar off. So now verse 55 through the rest sure sounds like the Lord is calling for Zion's camp 
which will be coming up in the next few sections. Or is he referring to our day? I think there's multiple applications here, but they certainly read 55 through 62 and saw it as their day, the 1830s. So the Lord says, here's the next step. Go and gather together the residue of my servants and take all the strength of mine house, which are my warriors. And then verse 56, go ye straightway into the land of my vineyard and redeem my vineyard, for it is mine, I have bought it with money. Verse 57, get ye straightway into my land, break down the walls of mine enemies, throw down their tower and scatter their watchmen. Avenge me of mine enemies. I mean, it sure sounds like a call to Zion's camp. Yeah. And I think the Missourians read this stuff and they see, oh, so this is how your God views us. Because, you know, they read, they they knew this was going on. This was printed in newspapers. Just very very difficult. But maybe we go back and look at this with another set of eyes. Yes, they will gather Zion's camp. And yes, they will march to Missouri. But just as they reach Missouri, Zion's camp is told, nope, this was never the intent for you to come out here. This was a proving ground, and it was from Zion's camp that the Lord chooses the majority of the Quorum of the Twelve and the Seventy and improves them and tests them. And it's also in that final moments of Zion's camp where the Lord says, look, let my people become great and glorious and go gather Israel. We need to get bigger and we need to get better. So in section 105, the Lord pushes the pause button on building Zion, at least the the physical city. He pushes the pause button. He says, let's wait for a little season. So knowing that that's going to happen, let's go back and reread 55 through the end and see it as our day, that our job is to go and gather together the residue of his servants to gather up the strength of his house, which are his warriors. Now, if you look at it from that lens, do you see the Lord's call for missionary work, work for the dead, perfecting of the saints? Verse 56 doesn't necessarily mean go to Jackson County. Go ye straightway unto the land of my vineyard and redeem my vineyard. Well, I went to Mexico. Some of you went to Toronto and Peru and Spain. Aren't we doing this? Isn't this exactly the fulfillment of the parable? That we are building up the strength of his vineyard. We are redeeming his vineyard. And we are tearing down the walls of his enemies. I know they probably read verse 57 as Missouri. But what if we read the walls of hatred and the walls of sin and the walls of Satan today, we are to be tearing down the walls of the Lord's enemies, the walls of misunderstanding, the walls of judgment. Tear down the walls, throw down their towers, scatter their watchmen. Stop the work of evil by doing the work of good. Isn't that what the rest of the parable is really saying? It's so much more than a call to Zion's camp. And then to clarify, we get this crowning question, verse 59. The Lord, in his parable, is having a servant ask this question. When will all these things be? So when will we build the greatest city ever built? When shall these things be? I think, Bryce, verse 59 is all of our questions. Yeah. When is the Lord coming? And the answer comes from verse 60. 
when I will. Now, looking back on the last 180 some odd years, don't you see that the Lord was telling them, we got a lot of work to do. When I will, you go straight forward and start to do the things that I have commanded you. And notice the very last verse of the parable, verse 62, after many days, all things were fulfilled. Back in section 100, the Lord kind of hints at this. And now I give unto you, this is verse 13 of section 100, now I give unto you a word concerning Zion. Zion shall be redeemed, although she is chastened a little season. So what's the purpose of the little season? Look at verse 16. For I will raise up unto myself a pure people that will serve me in righteousness. That's the holdup. That's the pause. Zion is waiting for a pure people. And that's our call to arms. That is what the Lord in 2020, why come follow me doctrine covenants 2021. One of the major messages that needs to come out is the Lord is waiting for a pure people that will serve him in righteousness. And then Zion will be redeemed. Have the plans changed? Well, let's go back to section 101. And let me convince you that no, the plans have not changed. Back in section 101, verse 16. Let your hearts be comforted concerning Zion, for all flesh is in mine hands. Be still and know that I am God. I think that one-liner right there could sum up so much of this section. So much of this. Be still and know that I am God. So what's the future of Zion? Verse 17, Zion shall not be moved out of her place, notwithstanding her children are scattered. They that remain and are pure in heart, there's that emphasis again, shall return. Someday we will return and come to their inheritances and their children with songs of everlasting joy and build up the waste places of Zion. I think the same thing could be said of Jerusalem. As you read Isaiah, over and over again, a message is the remnant shall return. Yep. And I think the saints that were taken from Jerusalem in Nephi's day, and they came to the Americas, when they met the Savior in third Nephi, they felt dispossessed. And the Lord told them, no, you're my people. It never was about the land. Be my people. And so though a remnant shall return and though Zion, the children are scattered, the Lord knows who they are. And I think the place is important, but I think more important is verse 16, yeah. your heart. You know, the Lord knows who you are and let the land take care of itself. I mean, there's just a lot we just don't have control over. Now he does say in verse 20, let's be clear, there is none other place appointed right. than that which I have appointed. Neither shall there be any other place appointed than the than that which I have appointed. He's not changing his plans. But then he says in verse 21, I have other places which I have appointed. Yeah. So there's that that other side. And so right now... Our job is to become a pure people. We must become a pure people. We've got to be the people that doesn't have jarrings and contentions and lustful desires in our hearts. We've got to be a people that doesn't 
only cry out in days of trouble, that we listen and we hearken in the day of peace. We have got to be a Zion people. It starts in our homes. It starts in our communities. As soon as we can start acting like Zion people in our homes, with our siblings, with our children, we can begin to spread the stakes of Zion. And we'll let the Lord take care of all the details, where and when and how. But for the time being, the plan is clear. Trust God and become a Zion people. There's a really great article by Arnold K. Gar where he gets into some of these things where Joseph talks about later all of North and South America is Zion from North to South. Some great quotes by President Kimball and also Bruce McConkie kind of relaxing some of the the strict rigidness of this, but also seeing, yes, there is a center place. Yes, it will be built, but Zion and her stakes will be glorified and will grow. Bryce, we've seen that. We've seen Zion increase. And so I think we can be careful how we teach it and teach it in such a way so that it's not all negative, that there's so much positive. Because in 1833, The saints don't see this. All they see is the violence of October 31st now, and now we're all on the prairie. Does God even know who we are? Now, historically, we know, yes, they're going to be gathered, they're going to be safe, and they're going to be put back together, but they don't know this. In 1833, many of them are homeless, and some of them die in the winter of 1833. It's interesting, Bryce, how many times the saints are cast out in the middle of the winter. Which is symbolic. Yeah, it is. So as part of that big picture, the Lord now moves to time period three to say, I know you're focused on 1833, and even you Come Follow Me listeners in 2021 are focused on 2021. But let's remember the big, big picture about where this is all going and how this will all end. And so he starts talking about that day that day that he comes. Verse 22 is kind of the transition into time period three. It is my will that all they who call upon my name and worship me according to my everlasting gospel should gather together and stand in holy places and prepare for the revelation which is to come when the veil shall be lifted and we will see the Savior. And then he says, look, when we get to that day, notice the first thing he mentions, verse 26, the enmity of man and the enmity of beasts, yea, the enmity of all flesh shall cease. See, that's a direct play on what's happening in Jackson County. We are going to get to a time where all hatred and all anger and all disputations and all contention will end and that we will dwell in peace. In that day, Satan will have no power to tempt men. And then 29, in that day, there shall be no sorrow because there's no death. Uh, 30, a child will not die in infancy. No children will die in infancy. They will live to the age of a tree. And when they die, they will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Verse 32, when he comes, he will reveal all things. And I love this. The biologist in me who would love to know how he created the earth. Verse 33, when he, verse 32, when he comes, he will reveal all things. 33, things which have passed, hidden things which no man knew, things of the earth by which it was made, and the purpose and the end thereof, things most precious, things that are above and things that are beneath, things that are in the earth and upon the earth 
and in the heavens. And then, all they who suffer persecution for my name. This is for the Jackson County Saints. This is for our day. All they who suffer persecution for my name and endure in faith, though they are called to lay down their lives for my sake, yet shall they partake of all of this glory. Wherefore, fear not even unto death, for in this world your joy is not full, but in me your joy is full. I think we all need to hold that moment in our hearts that there will come a day where every tear will be wiped away. Death will go away. Love and friendship and brotherhood and accepting the responsibility and rights and privileges will all be flourished, that we will live in this greatest, most wonderful society that this planet has ever known. The days this earth has been waiting for will come. In the meantime, we've got to become a pure people. We've got to become the people that the Lord wants us to be. And going back to that parable, we need prophets and we need temples. Those become two critical pieces of becoming a pure people. Let's not be the people that disregard prophets' counsel in the day of peace. Because when the day of trouble comes, we will recognize the value of that counsel. Prophets will prepare us for the future. Temples will prepare us for all that's coming. And so rising up from the ashes of Jackson County is a plea for every saint today to pick up that dropped baton and cross the finish line not necessarily in where we build it or how we build it, but in who we are that build it. I sorrow for the suffering of the Jackson County Saints. I can't wait to embrace them and to let them know that I was behind them and that I cared and that I loved. But I, I feel them calling out to me that I have to learn the lesson that their suffering is supposed to teach, that we must be the pure people the Lord needs us to be. Excellent. And with that, we thank you. We'll see you next week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions. 